I want to hit in this, this fourth session what I call truth and history. And that means talking about history. We've been doing that for three sessions. But, you know, history is something that's specifically singled out by God. We're told in the scriptures, throughout the scriptures, to recall the former days, to remember the former times. And verse after verse, passage after passage, God tells us to know history. You'll find that history is a key part of revivals. When Josiah was rebuilding the temple, getting God back in the center of the nation, the center of its life, they found that old scroll. They brought that scroll out and said, my gosh, we used to be like this. We didn't lead to a huge national revival. They were already doing something good, but it just really sent it up exponentially. Uh, you find that when the New Testament church, the church's birth, you have Stephen giving the first lecture for the New Testament church, and it's not a doctrinal dissertation. It's not a theological treatise. It's a history lesson. He said, guys, don't you see what God's been trying to do from the beginning? Let me remind you. Abraham, Isaac, and he just goes through all generations. Up to, it's a history lesson. And so the New Testament is birthed, in a, or, or the New Testament church is birthed in a history lesson. So throughout the Bible, you see God is, is real key. As a matter of fact, what saved Mordecai's life and what turned the gallows of Haman into hanging Haman rather than Mordecai was the king came up with the case of insomnia. He said, bring me something to read. They brought him the history of his own kingdom. And reading that, he says, there's this official named Mordecai. Saved my life. I don't think I ever did anything for him. Next morning comes in, Haman, what should I do for somebody who really does something good for me? Haman, a narcissist that he is, says, well, here's what you do. And the king says, good, go do that for Mordecai. It was that history that he read the night before that caused the whole thing to change. Otherwise, Haman's gallows would have hung Mordecai because the king wouldn't have had a clue who Mordecai was. So all throughout the Bible, history is used to change directions of a nation, to change events in nations. So history is a really big deal. Now, the way we used to teach history is a different philosophy from where we are today. This man is named Charles Coffin. Charles Coffin is a very popular uh, textbook writer in the 1800s, late 1800s. And back in that day, you did not have um, teachers' colleges. So what they did was in the front of the textbook, the author would write to the teachers how you need to teach this. This is the philosophy. This is what we're going to do. And by the way, he's such a good guy that his, his books have been reprinted. They're available today, and they're all really good books, Charles Coffin. But this is what he said in the front of the textbooks. He says, notice that while oppressors have carried out their plans, there were other forces silently at work which in time undermined their plans as if a divine hand were directing the counterplan." He said, when you study history, you'll see things moving here, and then suddenly they'll take a sharp turn. You go, where'd that come from? I'll give you an example. American Revolution, George Washington, a bunch of farmers, shopkeepers, preachers, others, trying to take on the greatest military in the world. And they're not that good. The Americans are not that good. And they end up getting trapped, pinned on a peninsula out on Long Island. The British have them into the American Revolution, into the American Army, into George Washington, except the British commanders who have been military all their life come up with this really well, ah, let's not kill them all today. Let's just rest today. We can kill them all tomorrow. No problem. You never do that. When you get your enemy there and you have your foot on his neck, you don't take your foot off the neck and say, hey, let's, let's both back off. I'll come back and kill you tomorrow. You don't do that stupid thing. As it happened, because he did that, a huge fog rolled in between the British Army and the American Army. George Washington had his guys going up and down the coast finding anything that would float. Brought it back, got all his troops on it, got them off Long Island, went across the Sound, and the fog lifted just in time for the British to see the last boats going over the horizon. 
Where'd that fog come from? And how come the British made such a stupid military decision? Civil War. Civil War's going on. The Confederates are thumping the Union in the first three years. I got their ears pinned back. Union won only two major battles in the first three years. The Confederacy won all the others. And then you get to things like Pea Ridge. And at Pea Ridge, and by the way, Pea Ridge comes, um, you, you have a, a change in the, the Civil War where that Lincoln calls for a really serious day of fasting and humiliation prayer, one of, the best, one of the best fasting proclamations you will ever read. We've become arrogant. We think we've done this all on our own. We've forgotten God. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's great. It's right out of Deuteronomy. So after that day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer, for the other two years, we only lost two battles. We only won two in the first three years. We only lost. It's a complete turn. And what happened is at the Battle of Pea Ridge, the uh, Confederates were again thumping the Union as they had been doing for three years, except the Confederate generals forgot to send ammunition to the troops on the front lines. Who does that? Who forgets to send ammunition to the guys fighting? They did. And so it turns out that the Union ends up chasing the Confederates off. You see, it's a divine hand directing the counterplan. So if you read history and don't see what God's up to, and the way we teach history today, God has nothing to do with it, you'll never understand history, which is why history is one of the most boring courses you can take in America today, which is why, as I mentioned last night, they don't even want you to learn American history at colleges now. What can you learn from a bunch of dates and names and places? Nothing. He continues. He says, whoever peruses the story of liberty without failing, without recognizing this feature will fail of fully comprehending the meaning of history. See, that's the other problem, Dave. We don't teach history with meaning. We teach history as a series of unrelated dates and names and places. There's no meaning because, you see, we don't think there's rights and wrongs. We're in this post-structural thing where the, now, there's no absolute rights and wrongs. You, you create your own rights and wrongs. So you don't give meaning to history because history has lessons. He says there must be a meaning to history or else existence is an incomprehensible enigma. And that's what history is now. It's an incomprehensible enigma because it has no meaning. Who wants to be bored with a bunch of dates, names, and places? It's not quite like what we've been doing for the last three sessions. This history has meaning. It has substance to it. That's the way we used to teach American history. We don't anymore, so why teach it at all? Because if there's no meaning, it's it's a waste of time. You also have this historian. This historian is George Bancroft. He's called the father of American history. He is the guy that first started in 1841, publishing history book, 10-volume series, He went back and collected all these original documents of the United States, and he built his history of the United States on those documents. It's it's a really thorough book. He's also the guy, he was the Secretary of Navy. He created uh, Naval Academy. Um, That's why Bancroft Hall at the Naval Academy is named after him, great historian, but also military guy. This is what George Bancroft, father of American history, said about history. That God rules in the affairs of men is as certain as any truth of physical science. Nothing is by chance. Though men and their ignorance of causes may think so, and again, that's secular history. They don't get any of the God stuff. He says, the fortunes of a nation are not under the control of blind destiny, but they follow the steps by which a favoring providence, calling our institutions of being, has conducted the country to its present happiness and glory. See, if you don't read history and see what God's been up to, you'll never understand history. You also have Jedediah Morris. He's a founding father, probably one of the top three founding educators, called the father of American geography. He was in the federal government. He was there at the American Revolution, did one of the first history books on the American Revolution. And this is what he said. He said, the effect, the office of a historian is to do three things. If you're a historian, this is what you're supposed to do. Number one, 
to record the progress of human affairs as directed by the providence of God. In other words, you tell the story of history as God is pointing it. What's God up to? Number two, to exhibit the connection of events showing how an immense series is produced as cause and effect. Oh, there's consequences to what I do? We don't teach that anymore because that would say there are rights and wrongs. If I were to teach consequences, I would show you that no socialistic system in the history of the world has ever produced prosperity, and every free market system has. But that would be a value judgment, and I can't do that. So we're, see, what happens is we don't show cause and effect because everybody's idea is good. We don't judge a tree by its fruits anymore because that would be a value. So we avoid this vehemently in education. I mean, there's a, there's a strident opposition to this, but that's what a historian's supposed to do. And number three, to display the character of man and the character of God. That's what American history was supposed to do. Now, you see all these quotes by famous historians. And by the way, I love this quote too, Justice James Wayne Moore. He said, history is fill in the blank. Now, how would we define history? I don't know how we define history today, but I bet it's not this way. He said, history is God's providence in human affairs. That's history. What's God up to? So this is the way we always looked at it. Now, this type of history is what we would call providential history. God's hand in history. What's he, what's he doing? What's he guiding us to? What's the end he wants? What, what is it, when does he intervene in the affairs of men? What does he do with the weather over here and et cetera? So, and, and by the way, just a, a funny story. In the, in the War of 1812, in, in, in that period of time, the American army was not in Washington, D.C. when the British came visiting. And so the British had free run of the city, and they went through, and they burned the White House. They burned the Capitol. They burned government buildings. Um, and while they were there, some unexpected storms came out of nowhere. Um, and those storms produced tornadoes that injured the British and hailstones that injured the British and lightning strikes that injured the British and no American army there, but all this weird weather going on. And Admiral Cockburn was the British commander. And as he leaves Washington, D.C., he's headed next to Baltimore to a place called Fort McHenry. In other words, the Star-Spangled Banner is just about to happen. So as they're leaving Washington, D.C., going east toward Baltimore, he's on his white stallion. They're riding out of town. He's leading the British troops. They successfully burn the city. By the way, those rainstorms set over the Capitol and White House and rained on those buildings and put out the fire. That's why the, the Capitol and the White House were not completely destroyed. It was this weird storm came out of nowhere nailed the British troops and saved the American buildings. So as they're leaving out of town, Admiral Cockburn, there's a bunch of Americans on these row houses as you go out of D.C., and they're standing on the porch watching the enemy go out of town, having burned the stuff. And Cockburn, Admiral Cockburn sees an old woman standing on the steps of one of these, these row houses, and he rode his horse over to her, and he said, Madam, the weather we've just experienced, is this typical of what you have in Washington, D.C.? She said, no, sir, God saves this for our enemies. You know, and that was, <laughs> that was her response. It was like, so historians call that a providential storm that saved the Capitol, saved the White House, et cetera. So, you know, again, providential history. You're seeing what God's up to. Now, today, there is vehement objection to this kind of history. I mean, for, for one thing, revisionists hate it. They're always rewriting it because they're, they're secularists. And by the way, that's why secularists don't like it either, nor do atheists like it, nor do Christians like Christians? Why would Christians? Why in the world would Christians object to this? I will tell you that the most vehement detractors I have, those who attack me most viciously, are Christian university history professors. They're the ones who hate what I do. 
I guarantee you when I leave here, there will be several blogs done by Christian professors that will just tear me up. And that's what they do everywhere I go. Now, why would they do that? Well, there's several things. I was sharing with Eric one of the reasons I think this is happening. But other than that, why would Christians join in this attack against providential history? And the answer is very simple. Jesus gave it to us in Luke 6.40 when he said, Every student, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. Most of our history profs got their credentials from pagan universities like Harvard and Yale and Princeton. And they didn't study the documents. They studied what their secular guys told them to study. And they come out with their Ph.D. and they're proud of their Ph.D. And what you're saying, just that, that contradicts everything I've been taught. And you're wrong because I was taught by the best. No. See, what happens is if you get the wrong mindset, you become like your teacher, which, by the way, is why Education Day is so very important. Unless you think Jesus wasn't telling the truth here. If you think God's Word is true, he says every student, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. It means you better pay real close attention to who your teachers are in school and the teachers teaching your kids. Because it doesn't matter what you put into them at home, you don't compete with 68 hours a week of social media that kids get. And there's no way you come close to that. You don't compete with the 40 hours a week they get at school either. So that's a commentary. Let's go back on course. Here's where we are. So all this opposition to teaching providential history, uh, and by, by the way, this is the verse that I thought I had up there. Every student who is fully trained will be like his teacher, Luke 640. So that's what's out there. Now, I mentioned last night that I'm appointed in a number of states by state boards of education, by governors, to review history standards, create history standards in states. And as I go through these textbooks, I found that there are a number of traps that that we find in these textbooks. There are certain historical traps. I want to point out three of them this morning in this session, things that you can look for. You'll recognize these instantly. And historical traps, understanding them is a very important thing. If you know what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, it says if we're aware of Satan's schemes and traps, then we won't be taken advantage of by him. Now, this means a lot to a guy from the country because in the country we have a lot of varmints that we try to take out on a regular basis. Um, Skunks and raccoons are the two biggest rabies carriers in the state of Texas. We take them out every chance we get. Feral hogs absolutely destroy our turf, our property, what we do for cattle, horses. So we take out feral hogs every chance we get. And, And you set traps for these things. And the only way that a trap works is if you don't know that it's a trap. Once a, fig, once a pig figures out that's a trap, they won't go in anymore and it's useless. Traps only work if you don't know what they are, which is why Paul says, if you're ignorant of his devices, they work. If you're not ignorant of his devices, you can't be trapped by Satan. Satan can only trap you if you don't know what his traps are. And so that's the way it works here. So let me show you some historical traps that we're really into in this generation. Uh, the three historical traps I'm going to show you there's post-structuralism, there's academic collectivism, and there's deconstruction, a bunch of isms. Don't worry about it. When I tell you what they are, you'll instantly recognize how they apply. So let's start with the first one. Let's start with post-structuralism. Post-structuralism says there are no transcendent values in history or government. Each individual must interpret them for himself according to the standards he makes for himself. So no, no set of values. Now, this is what you find the courts doing on a regular basis today. There's no absolutes. The, conscience not, the Constitution is not absolute. We have a living Constitution. It is, and I, by the way, I love the way that this was explained. This living Constitution concept was explained by Chief Justice Charles Evan Hughes. 
He said, we are under a constitution. Yay, I'm glad judges acknowledge that. But, ooh, you got to hate that word. We are under a constitution, but the constitution is what the judges say that it is. Really? That's what we've been living under for a number of years. That's post-structuralism. There are no transcendent overarching values. It's whatever we say that it is. So post-structuralism, we see it all the time, but it also appears in textbooks. We're not going to take a position whether something's right or wrong. There's a textbook that was introduced in Texas through the adoption process that says the best form of government ever instituted, best form of human government ever instituted by man was communism. How can you say that? You can only say that if you don't look at causes and effects. Because oh, that's my opinion. That's what's in the textbook. What textbook teaches, that's their opinion. They have a right to their opinion. Really. How about a right to truth? See, we used to believe that truth trumped opinions. Now opinions trump truth. That's post-structuralism. So there are no transcendent values in history, but there's more to it than that. Post-structuralism says persons have values not on the basis of who they are individually, but rather on the basis of the groups with which they identify. Now, that's what we today call identity politics. You see, we have groups in D.C. that lobby, or we have lobbyists in D.C. that lobby for groups. And we got to know, before I know what to think about you, I have to know whether you're gay or straight. I got to know whether you're union or right to work. I have to know whether you're liberal or conservative. I have to know whether you're evangelical or atheist. I have to know whether you're young or senior. I have to know whether you're black, Hispanic, white, Asian. I, I don't know how to think about you until I know what group you're in. And so what we do in America, we don't have lobbyists for the citizens. We got lobbyists for groups. We're, that's post-structuralism. We think about groups. Uh, in the state of Texas, when we were given the, the, the standards, there's about 140 teachers that write the standards, and they give them to the experts, and we go through them. And the teacher said, you, before you deal with any, history and he, with any hero in history, you have to say what group they're with. We said, why? Because we want to make sure all groups are included. We said, no, no, no. That's not. There were six of us that, that were considered experts on it. And, and I said specifically, I'm not doing that. I'm going to, anybody who did something significant, any individual who did something significant, I'm going to tell you about them. I'm not going to do it by groups. Well, they said we have to have everybody included. And so in the way they did it, out of the 250 or, peop, 50 or so people we call heroes, um, about 9% of them were minority. The way we did it, where we're going to show you any individual did something great, 25% of the heroes were minorities. We actually tripled what they wanted but we didn't do it on the basis of groups. We did it on the basis of individuals. That's the way God looks at it. God says, you're an individual. I don't care what group you're from. I don't care whether you're Jew. I don't care whether you're Samaritan. I don't care whether you're male or female. I care who you are individually. But we don't do that in America. And as a consequence, it affects our policies. We now have crimes, hate crimes. When the hate crime bill went through seven years ago that said we're going to protect homosexuals from attack, uh, one of my friends on Judiciary Committee said, I've got some amendments I want to offer. Uh, while we're protecting homosexuals and lesbians, I want to also protect seniors and veterans from hate crimes. They said, no, 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 those aren't groups we want to protect. These are the groups. Really? Not everyone's treated equally? On it? No, not at all. So when you get into post-structuralism, you protect certain groups, you elevate certain groups. No longer is everyone in equal. We do that in our tax policy as well. We have to know how much you make before we treat you. Now, God says, look, I don't care who you are, 10% is a tithe. Call it a tax. If you're poor, you're going to pay 10%. If you're rich, you're going to pay 10%. Now, the rich will always pay more than the poor. You're poor, you made $10 last year, you give a dollar. You're rich, you made $100 million last year, you'll give $10 million. Rich always will pay more than the poor, but everybody's treated the same. God's, Jesus said, the sun signs on the, the righteous, the unrighteous, rain falls on the just, the unjust, all the same, 10%. But not today. We say, oh, 
you're in that group, um, we've got to hit you with 38%. Or you're in that group, we'll give you money. Uh, you're at a 12%. We have to know what group you're in to know how to treat you. That's called progressive taxation. The Bible teaches capitation taxation where you do everybody the same across the board. So that's post-structuralism. Now, this also has impact and because what you do is when you're identifying groups, you don't really care about the nation anymore. You care about the groups that you're with. So identity politics is separate from the concept of nationalism. And so as you look at the great seal, it says e pluribus unum, which means out of many we become one. But under post-structuralism, what you do is you say it's e unum pluribus. Out of one we become many. We're not a nation. We're just a a country with a whole bunch of different groups in it. So you lack the cohesion. That's what post-structuralism does. We see this in immigration. Now this, in in 1919, at the end of World War I, people flooded to America. They said, we can't take what's going on around us. We've got to get to a stable nation. Let's go to America. And so in 1919, the chief of naturalization wrote this book, How to Become an American Citizen. It covers American laws, American philosophy. If you want to be a citizen here, here's what you need to know. And then this book was reprinted again in 1941 because in 39, as, as Hitler goes in Czechoslovakia and Poland, etc., uh, people start flooding back to America. Here it comes again, another world war. Let's get the heck out of town. And so they're coming back in in 39 and 40. and 41, they republish this book by the chief of, of naturalization on what it takes to become an American citizen. Today, we don't do it this way anymore. But look what philosophy used to be. An American is a man who is greater in his soul than in his class, creed, political party, or the section in which he lives. To be an American, a man must have an American soul and believe in the spiritual realities upon which American rests and out of which America... Believe in the spiritual realities? You have to have common things and believe in a common spiritual base. It says, America was created to unite mankind by those passions which lift and not by the passions which, came, which separate and abase. We came to America to get rid of the things that divide and make sure of the things that unite. Now, that was our immigration philosophy up until the modern era. And now we have to know what group you're with. Uh, one of the organizations that I'm, I'm president of the board, an organization that we do uh, direct intervention, direct rescues of Christians who are about to be killed by ISIS. And so we've moved about 400 families out. Just yesterday, we intervened and got five families out, did an intervention, had to send military in, secretly move them out because they were about to be killed. So we'll go in and and get them safe across borders. And so in doing that, we need a safe place to put them. The United States will not accept Christian refugees, but they will accept Muslim refugees. What? See, we have to send them to Australia right now or to Brazil right now. We're looking at Canada. Canada's opening up to us. We just sent 147 to Slovakia. Can't get them into America because that's the wrong group. We're not after that group of Christians. We're after this group. It's crazy. See, but that's, that's post-structuralism. We look at groups more than we look at individuals. And, and that happens throughout history as well. So emphasize, post-structuralism emphasizes groups and group rights rather than individual and individual rights. Now, as you go through that, this division rather than unites, what's the biblical solution to this? To get your thinking right on this, you have to think like the Bible in this. And in the Bible, Jesus didn't die for the group. He died for the individual. If he'd been the only one, he would have died for you. It's not about the group. It's about the individual. So we have to rethink that. See, I... Uh, well, different, different thing. I'll, I'll get into that later. Individual salvation, not, you're not saved by a group that you're in. You're saved by whether you know Jesus, whether you have a... Everything's about the individual. So it's all about individualism, not collectivism. 
you got to think biblically as you look at history, as you look at politics, as you look at public policy, as you look at the way city councils do things, the NDO ordinances, non-discrimination ordinances so common in cities. What they're doing is saying this group's going to be protected, and if this group criticizes that group, wait a minute, how about everybody gets a right of free speech? Everybody gets, we don't do with individuals. We have to break you into groups now, which creates one. It creates the, the kind of friction we're seeing where that this group hates this group and this group can't get along with it's not the individual. So that's the first thing that you'll find a lot of history books covering is post-structuralism. Second thing is academic collectivism. Academic collectivism's heavy reliance on peer review is the almost exclusive standard for historical truth. Experts quote each other and those from their group rather than consulting original sources. This is what we're into today as experts. Um, I'm on TV a lot, and what happens is... Some, some issue comes up and they need an expert. But in a 24-hour cycle, cable, cable channels are going to cover that story about seven times. And they don't want the same person on each time. So they go get seven different people to cover the seven different segments. And if you appear on TV, you must be an expert. That's the mindset. That's not it. They're just looking for somebody who's got an opinion. They put them on TV with a suit and a tie, and that makes them an expert. And so what happens is we think guys on TV are experts, but they're not. I mean, not even close to that. And they may not even know anything about the issue at all. They're just talking about it as if they do. And that's what's happened with so much of academia today. They have opinions, and they have very strong opinions. They may not line up at all with historical records or documents. And history professor told me this, told me all the founding fathers were atheists, agnostics, and deists. And that's what I believe. How about if that doesn't line up with documents, which is what we looked at last night? So academic collectivism is a heavy reliance on experts. And we're in an expert-oriented society right now. Now, I was part of, I joined three other academics, and four of us did a book that's for universities on religion in America. And the question is, did religion have an impact in the founding of America? My position was, yes, it did. The other three, no, it didn't. So everybody had their position. Everybody took the thing. And, and the argument from others were that one of the great proofs that religion did not have impact in America, a positive impact in America, is Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was the leading secularist of the day. As a matter of fact, Thomas Jefferson was so secular that when he founded the University of Virginia... Jefferson's University, it became the first university in America to have absolutely no chaplain. That shows you how secular he was. Every university before that had a chaplain. There's no chaplain at the University of Virginia. Jefferson's a secularist. So they're, chirp, they're chirping away and they're doing all those discussions. And I walk over to the uh, documents we have in the library and pull out some interesting documents, kind of lay them out. This is one of them. Now, this is written by a guy named Septimus Tustin. You see his name there at the bottom. This is actually a newspaper advertisement. I know it doesn't have any pictures. How can it be an ad? We actually used to read back in the day. We actually read things. Um, Septimus Tustin, this is an ad for the University of Virginia because when the University of Virginia opened up in 1826, new university, they didn't want to get students, so they ran ads like this in Baltimore paper and Washington, D.C. paper and Philadelphia, running ads to say, come to the University of Virginia. Now, who in the heck is Septimus Tustin? Oh, he's the chaplain of the university. What does he say about the university? Well, let's look at this part over here. I'll just blow it up here for you. It has been my pleasure on each returning Sabbath to hold up before my enlightened audience the cross of Jesus, all stained with the blood of him that hung upon it, is the only hope of the perishing. University of Virginia? Oh, no, it was a secular university. Jefferson started it. had no chaplains. Who's this guy? 
And what is he doing preaching this at the university? Let's not stop there. Here, here, is a, here is another ad from a newspaper. I want you to see the central part. This is another ad from University of Virginia. It says, religious services are regularly performed at the university by a chaplain who is appointed in term from the four principal denominations of the state. And by a resolution of the faculty, ministers of the gospel and young men preparing for the ministry may attend any of the schools without the payment of fees to professors. Tuition free if you're studying for the ministry at the University of Virginia. Jefferson's University? Yeah, I know. That's just original documents. Let's not go with that. Let's go with all the opinion of the professors that, see... Uh, the, the notion that he is a secularist because there's no chaplain? What do you do with documents like that? But see, academic collectivism says, no, we all agree. We've all talked to each other. It was a secular university. Not so. You have the same thing that happens when you get other Jefferson issues like the Jefferson Bible. I have people jump me about this all the time. Jefferson was so secular, he took the Bible and cut out everything he disagreed with. And that's the, the image you see. This is on, on display at the Smithsonian right now. The Jefferson Bible. And when people tell me that, I say, what are you talking about? Jefferson cut out what he disagreed with the Bible? What are you talking about? You know, the the Jefferson Bible. I said, Jefferson Bible. I said, which one are you talking about? Now, I always ask that question because I know they don't have a clue what they're talking about. Which one are you talking about? What do you mean, the Jefferson Bible? Yeah, but there were two. Which of the two are you talking about? There were two Jefferson Bibles? Yeah. There was one in 1804 and there was one in 1820. And the other thing I say is, have you ever read it to see if it cut it out? No, but that's what everybody says. Oh, I see. So that makes it true because everybody said it. Let's start with the 1804 one. The 1804 Jefferson Bible, and Jefferson would punch you in the nose if you called it a Bible. And by the way, if we're going to say that Jefferson cut out all the things he disagreed with in the Bible, then we're saying he had an anti-Bible tone. That, that's the, the inference that comes through there. So somebody's going to have to explain to me why he was a lifetime member of the Virginia Bible Society why some of the largest contributions he gave were to the Bible Society. On his, on his account books, he record, records every contribution. Some of the largest he gave, I think it's either the third or the fourth largest contribution he gave is to the Virginia Bible Society. And why is it that he helped fund the John Thompson Bible, the largest Bible ever printed in the United States called a hot press Bible? And why is it that Thomas Jefferson helped fund the Thomas Scott Bible, an eight-volume Bible filled with commentaries? And why is it that Thomas Jefferson offered to help fund the Charles Thompson Bible, although he found out that it was published before his money got there to help the Bible, so it was already published, but he's trying to help fund a Bible by Charles Thompson, Secretary of Congress. And why in the world did he give Bibles to his kids and grandkids as they came of age to read? He said, here's the book you need to be reading. And why in the world did he put the Bible in Washington, D.C. schools as a a reading text? We talked about that last night. So if Jefferson is so anti-Bible, what are we going to do with all these facts? Well, we're going to ignore those facts. The first thing is Jefferson cut everything he disliked out of the Bible. So let's go back to the 1804 Bible. Now, interesting, in 1804, the year before, Edward Dowse, a friend of Jefferson, gave him a sermon by Reverend William Bennett out of Scotland. It's an evangelical sermon. And the sermon said, hey, if you want to reach the Indians in America with the gospel, do not give them the Bible. What are you, evangelical pastor saying, don't give them, what are you talking about? You give them the Bible, they might read the genealogies first. They might read Leviticus first. That would kill them. See, that's why with new converts, we often give them the gospel of John. We start them with something very simple. He said, give them the teachings of Jesus. Don't give them the whole Bible. Give them the... And Jefferson, good idea. So Jefferson sat down, and what he did was he took two 1804 Bibles he had in the White House, and he started cutting out the teachings of Jesus. Now, that's what we would call the red letters of the Bible. He pasted them end to end. Those, those teachings that he cut out, um, 
and by the way, Jefferson had great relations with the Indians, knew them very well, grew up with them, done great things with the Indians. They had great, great relationship and trust. So Jefferson starts cutting these out, and he does the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Goes through, and so you're only going to get the parable one time rather than three times or two times or four times. But teachings of Jesus, but it's not, not re- repetitive. It's the, the red letters of Jesus. And this is the title he gave to that work in 1804. It's called The Philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth, being extracted from the account of his life and doctrines given by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, being an abridgment of the New Testament for the use of the Indians. Let's have you read the red letters of the New Testament. He gave that to missionaries and said, this is a whole lot cheaper to print than printing the whole Bible, and this has got the teachings of Jesus in it. Let's give these to the Indians instead. Now, what happens with this is it's like a synoptic gospel. He took all the four gospels, put the teachings together, and you just have the life of Jesus. We call that a synoptic gospel today where you can read the, the, all, all four gospels merged into one in sequence of what happened. So that's a synoptic gospel. That's what Jefferson did. Significantly, if you look inside what he did in 1804, it contains Jesus raising the dead, healing the sick, Jesus casting out demons. It contains Jesus as the Son of God. It contains the second coming. It contains heaven and hell. I thought he cut out all the miraculous stuff he disagreed with. It's there. Have you ever read it? No, but everybody says it's not there. Well, it's obviously not the 1804 you're talking about, so you must be talking about the 1820 version, right? Let's look at the 1820 version. In 1820, now Jefferson, president of the country, was very concerned about behavior. He believed that if you could control yourself, you would not need government to control you. The more self-government you have, the less government you need. And he's a limited government guy. So what he did was he made a very thorough study of the moral philosophy of other nations. And he went back and he read the morals, teachings in Rome and in Greece and in Sparta. Anything that was recorded in in teaching and morals, he went through. And by the way, the study of moral philosophy was a course of study in every university that day. You studied the morals of other nations. And as Jefferson did, and he has a, these are some of the guys he studied. I know some of these names. Most of them I don't recognize. But Jefferson studied the writings of Pythagoras. All right, I got that. Antoninus, I don't know who that is. Timaeus. I do know Cicero and Plato and Socrates. I haven't studied their moral writings. Uh, Apaticus and Aristides and Xenophon. I never heard of these guys. Jefferson took their writings and studied the way they taught morals. And you know what Jefferson did? He said, I've studied all these guys. And he said, the teachings of Jesus beat them all. Nobody comes close to the moral teachings of Jesus. If you live by the moral teachings of Jesus, you'll have a nation that won't need much government. So what he does is he says, let's get the moral teachings of Jesus there. So he goes through, and this is the handwritten copy of his 1820 version. It's called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth extracted textually from the Gospels. So he goes through, and in his list, he found 81 moral teachings of Jesus. And he said, let's get these teachings. And he listed them all out, and that's what he included in his Bible, was the morals of Jesus. He said, if we can get people to live by this, we need less government. And so they included the Good Samaritan. They included the Golden Rule. They included turning the other cheek and showing kindness to an enemy and forgiving offenders and the Lord's Prayer and the Lord's Great Commandment, love God with all your hearts. That's what's in there, 81 moral teachings. And that's what he came out with. That's what they called the Jefferson Bible. Now, nobody knew that existed until 1886. Cyrus Adler, the secretary at Smithsonian, found that Jefferson's grandson actually had this copy, and they went and purchased it and got it from the grandson, added it to the collection in Washington, D.C. And in 1902, Representative John Lacey of Iowa read this and said, 
This is killer stuff. If we would read this and live by it, it would. And so what he did was he wrote a series of editorials, op-eds that ran across the nation, widely circulated on this great book by Jefferson that told us how to live our life in public in such a way that it would, would help the nation. So what they did was in 1904, Congress approved printing 9,000 copies of this. And for the next 50 years, every single freshman rep and senator that came in got a copy of it and said, if you'll live by this, you'll stay out of problems. If you'll live by this, there won't be corruption, there won't be fraud, there won't be, but live by the teachings of Jesus. This is actually the congressional edition of it right here. This is what they printed in 1904. And on the inside, the House of Representatives, this is one of the copies that came out of the House. This is what we gave every single congressman for 50 years, said live by the teachings of Jesus and you won't get in trouble. And now we're told, oh, he cut out everything he disagreed with. Really? This is not a bad deal. The life and morals of Jesus and Nazareth, he wasn't trying to do the doctrines of Jesus. He was trying to do the morals of Jesus. So when people tell me that's a Jefferson Bible, first, there is no such thing. There's the life and morals of Jesus, and there's the philosophy of Jesus extracted from the Gospels. That's the two things Jefferson did. So, <coughs> excuse me, academics say he cut out everything. Wrong, dead wrong. Academic, that's why we did the book Jefferson Lies, which goes through seven major lies that we tell about Jefferson today that are historically not true. So, again, academic collectivism. Um, what do you do with that? What do you do? Acts 17.11. There is no one in the New Testament church that was more credentialed than Paul was. He was a Jew of the Jew. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He studied under Gamal. There's nobody who knew more academically than Paul. And Paul, in his three missionary journeys, said, my favorite group group I loved the most was the Bereans because they didn't believe anything I told them. He said, every day, remember the Bereans, Acts 17, 11? Every day they searched the scriptures to see if I was telling them the truth. You see, they wanted truth. They didn't care about his credentials. They didn't care how many PhDs he had over his name. Was he telling the truth? He's the most credentialed guy in the church, and he appreciated the fact that they wouldn't accept his credentials. They wanted to see it for themselves in the scriptures. That's the right response is all right, show me your sources. Where, where, did, where did they come from? You don't have any sources on Oh, you're quoting another professor? Why don't you quote something from back in their day? Why, why, don't you, why don't you read the Jefferson Bible for yourself and see what it is? So one more that I'll give you. Deconstructionism is a steady flow of negatives about Western institutions, beliefs, and values in order to tear down the old certainties on which Western culture is founded. Steady flow of negatives. We get a lot of that today. America is not that great nation. I talked about that last night, the American exceptionalism concept. Tear down the old certainties on which Western culture is, is founded. So Alexei Tocqueville, we've talked about him twice last night and today. Now I'm going to talk about him a little more. Alexei Tocqueville, this is democracy in America right there. This is what you get if you're in an AP lit class today. You'll study this. Um, some universities still study this in lit classes. And this edition, it's a great, starts out, it's a great political classic. Uh, next page, Alexa Tocqueville, Democracy in America, specially edited and bridged for the modern reader. By Rich- Wait a minute, specially edited and bridged for the modern reader. What does that mean? Here's what it means. There's the modern. There's the original. Think anything's missing out of here? <laughs> by the way... The font size is almost identical between the two. You open them up, and the font's almost the same. If you do a comparison, everything that talks about religion, morals, family, and marriage is gone out of this one. It's in this one. Alexia de Tocqueville said, Upon my arrival in the United States, the first thing that struck my attention was the religious nature of the country. In France, I found religion and 
uh, government were enemies marching in the opposite direction. In America, I found they were intimately joined together. Religion must be therefore considered as the first of their political institutions. And he goes through and he saw, they got religion everywhere. They've got an education, they've got it in government, they've got it in transportation. You won't find that in this one. This is especially added in a bridge for the modern reader. See, that's one way of tearing down the Western institutions is let's just not talk about them. So that's common in textbooks today. Uh, you also have an addition to that. This book, don't know much about history, New York Times bestseller. Now, this, this, just the title of the book is, is a great commentary. This is a public school textbook that they use because we teach history so bad in public schools. We have to have a book that tells you, since you don't know much about history, let me teach. And what he does is he goes through and he says, okay, let me just give you the Reader's Digest condensed version of this, and younger people won't know what that reference is to. Nonetheless, he condenses it down into a a short, pithy thing. And so as you get to the American Revolution, for example, uh, say you want a revolution, page 61, American Voices, Patrick Henry to the House of Burgesses, is life so dear a piece of, and this is, by the way, is from Patrick Henry's famous speech on March the 23rd, 1775. He said, Saint, oh, he, he gave this speech at St. John Church? Yeah, because the legislature met at the church. So St. John Church is where the legislature, ooh, that doesn't sound right. Yeah, see, who, who knew that the legislator met in churches back then? But they did. So he says, as part of his speech, is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of change and slavery? I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. We've all heard that. What's that? That's an ellipse. What's missing? Four words. Forbid it, almighty God. Now, there's a lot of white space on that page. I think they've got space for four words in there. I think they can fit that in if they want to. wonder why it's not there. Oh, it talks about God. We can't let students here at the Founding Fathers talk about God. See the same thing, Mayflower Compact, 1620, December 1620. This is the first government document created in America. Cool document. We whose names are underwritten do, but, ooh, there's another one of those. What did they take out? We whose names are underwritten... Having, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, they take that out? That's why they came to America. I had a Christian school history teacher last couple of weeks, Christian school near us, teaching that the pilgrims came to America searching for gold. They were not religious people, didn't come here at all. He probably learned it out of that book right there. See, this is what we've been teaching now for a while, this is all deconstructionism, tear down Western institutions. So that's what we got. Now, in addition to tearing down Western institutions, the other part is a steady flow of negatives. Now, the steady flow of negatives happens on a regular basis. Every textbook I've ever reviewed always talks about the Puritans, and that is those intolerant Christians. And how do we know they're intolerant? Well, because they had the witch trials. They, kill, they came here seeking religious liberty, and then they kill all these people. Boy, are they a bunch of bigots. Interestingly, those witch trials lasted under two years, 18 months or so. 27 people were put to death, and that's 27 people should not have been put to death. The story is not the witch trials. The story is how did they come to an end? The witch trials came to an end in America when three Christian ministers, the Reverend John Wise, the Reverend Increase Mather, and the Reverend Thomas Brattle, went to the governor, Governor William Phipps, and said, Phipps, look what the Bible says about rules of evidence. You're running these trials the way they do them in Europe. In the Bible, you get to confront your accuser, John 8, 12. In the Bible, you get to compel witnesses in your behalf, Proverbs 18, 17. You're not doing what the Bible says about justice. You're doing what Europe is doing with justice. 
And after these preachers showed him the scriptures, he says, you're right. And he called in Judge Samuel Sewell, who was running the trial, said, Sewell, look at this. We've been doing it wrong. And so what happens is Sewell stands up in church and gives a big repentance thing. He says, I've shed innocent blood because I wasn't following the scriptures. This is wrong. The governor then called for a colony-wide day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer, seeking to avert God's judgment from coming on the colony for having shed innocent blood. Now, the trials come to an end because of the intervention of three Christian ministers saying, let's go back to the Bible instead of what we've been doing for the last several hundred years. But put all that aside for a minute. At the same time that witch trials were going in America, witch trials were also going across Europe. Do you know how many were killed in the witch trials of Europe? 500,000 were killed in the witch trials of Europe. 27 in America, 500,000. And kids will hear about the 27, but they won't hear about the 500,000. And what they'll hear is the 27, but not why it's not higher than that. Why wasn't it 100,000? Because three preachers stepped in and said, here's what God says, let's do the right thing. We never get that out of history, and yet that's what happened. See, that's the steady flow of negatives. We've got to make sure that when we portray religious people in history, we show how bad they are. Uh, but thanks, guys, for letting me share with you. God bless you.